On a sticky August night, 1982, in a small Indiana town, 16-year-old Craig Long accepts a ride from a nice enough looking fellow. However, when Craig tells the man, uh, hey dude, you know, you could stop here. That's good. Thanks for the ride. You know, something to that effect. The man refuses and instead presents an eight inch butcher knife, jams it against Craig's rib cage and tells him that he is not going anywhere. The driver then drives Craig to a secluded area and ties and handcuffs his wrists. He tells Craig that he is going to rape him. Somehow, Craig manages to get the truck door open by leaning his body against it, and he jumps out of the truck and takes off running. He quickly realizes that the driver is running after him. The driver catches up with Craig and stabs him in the chest with the butcher knife. Craig falls to the ground, where he decides that he should pretend to be dead. Maybe, if the man thinks he's dead, he won't stab him again. Craig waits and listens. When he hears his attacker's footsteps moving away from him, clasping his hands over his wound, which is spurting blood, he crawls to a nearby farmhouse for help. Someone there calls the paramedics. Paramedics arrive, and as they are tending to Greg, who shows up? None other than his attacker, 26-year-old Larry Eiler. Eiler is brought in for questioning. He tells police that he stabbed Craig Long by accident, that there was a scuffle, and he had accidentally stabbed Long. This is, of course, not the story that Craig tells the police. When police search Eiler's vehicle, they find a sword, hunting knives, tear gas, and handcuffs. Very odd. It looks to police like a cachet of tools that an, an abductor and a murderer might use. Hi, Curious Listener. Welcome back to Cornfed Killer. Or if this is your first time here, welcome to Cornfed Killer. I'm your host, Michelle O'Dell. I am back from my little hiatus and hoping to get back on track with new episodes coming out every Tuesday. So thank you for sticking in there with me. Uh, also, stay tuned for more from me as I am working on some spooky, spine-chilling, and outrageous ghost and creature stories for you. So stay tuned. All right. In today's episode, we are discussing serial killer Larry Eiler, a.k.a. the highway killer. As always, coming up is graphic, uh, violent details. And if that's not your cup of tea, I understand you may want to skip. Uh, we will be dealing with sexual assault as well. So if that's not your bag, I get it. All right. 
So let's get on with it. So even though it seems obvious that Larry Eiler attacked Craig Long and tried to kill him, charges are not brought against Eiler and the case is dropped. Later, Craig would testify that he was paid $2,500 to drop the charges against Eiler. The police and the prosecutor declined to move forward with the case. And Eiler, other than paying $43 in court costs, gets away without any punishment for the attempted murder of teenager Craig Long. So, curious listeners, who is this Larry Eiler? Larry Eiler was born in Crawfordsville, Indiana on December 21st of 1952. He was the youngest of four children, two brothers and one sister. Larry's father was an abusive alcoholic, physically violent with his wife and his children. When Larry was just three years old, his mother took the children and left, divorcing their father. After this, Larry had little contact with his father. Over the next several years, Larry's mother worked to keep his siblings and him fed, and so they were often left in the care of various neighbors and babysitters, or even left alone to care for themselves. And sadly, they were even in the foster care system, living in foster homes from time to time. Larry's mother also remarried three times to be exact. And two of those three stepfathers were also abusive drunks. As Larry grew into his teen years, he began to act out. It got so bad that his mother took him to be psychologically evaluated. It was determined that Larry was of average intelligence and that he suffered from an intense fear of abandonment. Not surprising, right? I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious to see why. His childhood was anything but stable, and he was constantly either being abused, ignored, left. It was also determined that Larry was extremely insecure and lacking in social skills. Larry's mother was advised by the doctors to place Larry in a boy's home in Fort Wayne, Indiana. This, to me, is completely counterintuitive. In fact, it's, it's bonkers. It's downright asinine. This kid has a fear of abandonment, so you advise the mother to abandon him? <laughs> to send him to a boarding boy's home far away. Um... I mean, really, it, it was still in Indiana, so it wasn't crazy far away. But to a kid, that's far away from home. So anyway, Larry stays in this boy's home for just six months before his mother brings him back home. He attends public school with his siblings, and he continues to be plagued by insecurity, and he's bullied by his peers. Not surprisingly, he drops out of high school before he, you know, before graduation. But Larry does earn his GED. After high school, he takes a job at Marion County Hospital, then later at a liquor store, and then a shoe store. It's during this time, while working at the shoe store, that Larry Eiler begins to frequent Indianapolis's gay bars. He is homosexual, though he's certainly not out, and is quite tormented by his sexual proclivities. So think about this. This is the early 80s. So 
this was not like today. It was not a very accepted thing to be. Many people had trouble rectifying this within themselves. So he is, to use the familiar vernacular, quote, at this time, a self-loathing gay man, end quote. Interestingly enough, this is the first time in Eiler's life that he actually makes friends, though. He becomes somewhat known in the gay community and is accepted there, even though internally he's still having a difficult time accepting himself, he actually finds a community. So it would seem, you know, things are looking up for old Larry. Larry continues, or I'm sorry, he connects with a group of gay men who have a fetish for leather. Most everyone in that community and in the gay community in Indianapolis as a whole who knew him described him as a laid back, cool guy. Everyone except for those with whom he had sexual encounters, however. Many of his sexual partners would later describe him as being sexually violent. Eiler had a tendency to hit, slap, bite, punch, choke, and even cut his sexual partners with a sharp knife. Larry clearly had two very different personas in and out of the bedroom. Larry quits his job at the shoe store and he starts working as a house painter. And at this point, he moves in with a friend, an Indiana State science professor named Robert David Little. Little and Eiler were both homosexuals and had become friends after meeting at one of the gay bars in Indy. They were not romantically involved, but were very close friends, buddies, best friends. Little, in fact, was the one who paid Craig Long the $2,500 to drop the charges against his friend. During this time, Eiler was in a romantic relationship with a married man named John... Dr okay, I'm, I'm going to mess up this last name. I'm trying. All right, John Dubrofocus... I don't know. Anyway, his wife knew about her husband's relationship with Eiler and was, by all accounts, fine with it. Eiler would even stay at this man's home with his wife and his children at times when he was in town painting houses. That may seem quite odd to you, but again, this is the early 80s. This sort of arrangement between a gay man and his wife was not at that time as uncommon as you might think. So from the outside, the now 30-year-old Eiler appeared quite contented. He had a good-paying job, some really good friends, and a partner whom he seemed to really care about, even if their arrangement was not exactly ideal. He was well-liked and seemingly stable. So, curious listener, when the bodies of young gay men start turning up along the roads and near bypasses in Indiana and Illinois, no one suspected that Larry Eiler had anything to do with their deaths. The first body to be discovered was that of Jay Reynolds. Jay Reynolds' body was found on March 22, 1982, unceremoniously discarded along the side of the road in the outskirts of Kentucky. 
near the Indiana border. Reynolds was found half-dressed and stabbed to death. On October 3, 1982, the body of 14-year-old Devoid Baker was found strangled to death on a roadside north of Indy. Less than a month later, the body of 19-year-old Stephen Crockett was found dumped along the roadside in Lowell, Indiana. Stephen had been stabbed 32 times, four times in the head. He was also half-dressed, showed signs of having been, been beaten and cut. This is overkill, so to speak. You don't have to stab someone 32 times to kill them, generally. So police knew that the killer was clearly full of rage. Shortly after the discovery of Stephen Crockett's body, the body of 25-year-old John Johnson was found, beaten, sexually assaulted, and stabbed along the roadside in Belshaw, Indiana. So police are starting to figure out that they may have a serial killer in their midst. In December of 1982, two bodies are found. 24-year-old John Roach in Belleville, Indiana, and Stephen Agin near Newport, Indiana. So by January of 83, the police and the FBI put together a task force to find this killer. They postulated that their killer was likely a homosexual man who was at odds with his own sexuality, an extremely violent man, a man full of animalistic rage. Seems spot on for Larry Eiler, but they had no leads, no clue as to whom the sadistic monster could be. Meanwhile, the bodies were still being discovered. In September of 1983, Larry Eiler was pulled over for a traffic violation. Police found that Larry had a young man in the car with him, a teenager. They determined that the teenager with him was a prostitute, and the pair of them was arrested for solicitation. Police discovered handcuffs, rope, surgical tape, a mallet, and two baseball bats in Eiler's truck. They immediately thought of the highway killer. The task force was alerted, and subsequently, they questioned Eiler about two recent unsolved murders of homosexual men in the area. He refused to cooperate, and police had to let him go. They did, however, obtain a search warrant for the home that Eiler shared with Professor Little. At the home, police found knives, handcuffs, receipts for handcuffs, as well as credit card receipts that placed him in the locations of the various murders at the time they were committed. Eiler was arrested on October 29, 1983, on the charge of murder. Larry quickly compiled a defense team who challenged the legality of the detective's findings. First, they argued that the searches of Eiler's property were done illegally, insisting that he had not been properly Mirandized before the search of his truck, meaning that he wasn't read his right or told of his rights before his truck was searched. 
His defense lawyers also argued that the search of the home that Eiler shared with Little was illegal because it had been conducted before the search warrant was actually in hand. All of this forced the judge to rule that the evidence discovered in the home and in Eiler's truck could not be presented in court. The judge then reduced Eiler's bond from $1 million to $10,000. His longtime friend and housemate, Richard David Little, along with some of his other friends, his mother, and his sister, raised the money and he was released in February of 1984. Eiler moved out of the house that he and, and Little had shared and into an apartment in Terre Haute, Indiana. On August 21st, 1984, a janitor notices an oddly shaped garbage bag behind an apartment complex. It's a white bag and it's tied together with a string or, you know, like a twine. And it looks weird, bulging, odd, not like garbage. So he's kind of like, huh, so curious. He opens the bag and much to his horror, he discovers a human leg inside the bag. He calls the police, of course, and they discover that there are eight bags in total, all containing various body parts. It is later determined that these parts belong to 16-year-old runaway Daniel Bridges. Police knew of Bridges. They had come across him before. He had been a sexually exploited kid and had been in the system, had been, DCFS was working to try to place him in different facilities, but he kept running. And it was known that he had been working as a sex worker on and off since the age of just 12. This is just the type of victim that the highway killer would target. And curious listener, guess who lived at this apartment complex? Ding, ding, ding. Larry Eiler. So police speak to the other tenants and people in the neighborhood. Several of them reported to police that they had seen Eiler behind the apartment complex the night before the janitor discovered the garbage bags containing Bridges' remains. Furthermore, a few of the witnesses told police that they had seen Eiler carrying bags out of his apartment that night. White garbage bags. Police arrested Eiler for the murder of Daniel Bridges, and this time made sure to dot all the I's and cross all the T's. They obtained the proper search warrants, and they were not going to let him slip through his, their fingers this time. Investigators found several restraints in Eiler's apartment, as well as bloodstains in the apartment, in a pattern that suggested that a bleeding body had been dragged across the floor. Police theorized that Eiler had killed and dismembered Daniel Bridges inside the apartment. Eiler would later admit that he had lured young Daniel Bridges into his apartment where he tied him up, beat him, tortured him, 
sodomized him, and finally stabbed him to death in his bedroom. Then he dragged his body into the bathroom where he used a hacksaw to dismember him, cutting him into eight pieces that he then placed in eight separate white garbage bags and put behind his apartment complex near the dumpster. This fucker, I mean, bold as brass. He doesn't even put the bags in the dumpster. He just chucks them behind the apartment complex. I guess, well, he got away with it before, right? So police also find fingerprints belonging to Eiler on Bridges' body as well as on the garbage bags. Eiler would not escape prosecution this time. He was found guilty of the aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint, and murder of Daniel Bridges. He was sentenced to death. He was never formally charged in any of the other murders, but several of the unsolved murder cases of young homosexual men in Indiana and Illinois were considered solved and Eiler named as the killer. This is over the next several years. I can, I can hear you scratching your head, I think. Allow me to explain how this worked. So in March of 1994, Larry Eiler died. Not by execution by the state of Indiana, as you might expect, but of complications due to the AIDS virus. Prior to his death, Eiler confessed to his attorney, Kathleen Zellner, that he had kidnapped, raped, tortured, and killed, some of whom he dismembered or even disemboweled, 21 teenagers and young men between 1982 and 1984. He says that he assisted in the murders of three other young men, and he named his longtime housemate Little, Richard David Little, as his accomplice. Little was never convicted. He listed the names of all the victims, along with details of each that only the murderer or the perpetrator would know. When, and he wrote and signed these confessions. After his death, attorney Zellner gave the names and the confessions to the appropriate authorities, and though he would never face charges for these horrific murders, at the very least, the families of the victims could stop wondering who had murdered their sons, their brothers, their friends. So I don't think families ever really have closure, so to speak. I think that's a word that we hear often in true crime, but I'm not sure that it actually exists. But at least they know who. So, you know, it's interesting because Larry Eiler was only convicted of the one murder, but we do consider him to be serial killer because after his death, it wasn't just the confessions Later, as all of these murders were being researched with fresh eyes in 
the 2000s, in the late 90s, even as late as 2021, one of his victims was identified. There, the technology is such that we can tie him to those murders. Okay, so he was slaying young men in Indiana, Illinois. Meanwhile, this is bonkers to me. Meanwhile, at the same time, John Wayne Gacy was doing the same in Chicago, as was Jeffrey Dahmer in Wisconsin. What in the hell was going on in the Midwest in the 1980s? Bizarre. And, you know, not to mention, this is the same time that in California, Ted Bundy's working, Ramirez, weird. So, okay. Anyway, until next time, curious listener.